This is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project, a podcast that explores the benefits and challenges of interdisciplinary education. Today we're speaking to our first father-son combination on The Range Project, Nathan and Ethan Buzzer. Nathan is a former Entrepreneur of the Year and graduated from Scotch College in 1988. He's had such a wide-ranging and exciting career path, it's almost impossible to fathom. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Nathan's son, Ethan, who at 15 years old has already launched his own tech startup. Somehow the end of this podcast turned into a magic show and it absolutely blew our minds. So if you'd like to watch these tricks, please head over to the Scotch College YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this episode with Nathan and Ethan Buzzer. Okay, uh, tonight we've got our first father-son combination in at Range Project, so welcome to Ethan and Nathan Buzzer. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure, thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, Ethan, you're a STEM student of mine. Um, you've recently started a business called Dronify um, with the help of Scotch parents who you've pitched for funding, managed to get some equipment, made some uh, big successes with the Teens in Business Awards. We'll talk about all that. Um, and Nathan, we've invited you in because, well, father-son combination, but also you probably have the most interesting and varied career I've ever heard Thank you. Um, from, uh, you know, developing Quasar that you sold to Bono from U2 all the way through to working for the Secret Service in the US as well as now developing, oh, there's medicine involved there, um, there's now... Uh, what are we up to again? Magic tricks. You develop magic tricks yeah, for magic. magicians. Okay, that's it's obviously very varied career. Um, first question. I'll I'll throw it out to you, Nathan. This is the curly one to start with. Your dad's obviously a very successful businessman. Why didn't he just buy you a drone to start up your company? Well, uh, I think Dad doesn't really believe in just just giving things. He thinks. Uh, all things need to, to be worked for. I think uh, might might have started off when he was uh, a kid as well. Uh, granddad bought him his first computer at two percent interest rate per month. <laughs> right. So this so, runs in the family, does it? This- yeah. Every generation gets harder. What is that? What is that mentality, Nathan? Is it? Um- I mean, Ethan's just been an absolutely fantastic son. I couldn't ask for anything better than what Ethan gives, um, and he's so motivated to achieve. I really want him to achieve in his own right. If something's given to someone, they don't have to fight for it. I don't think you get that lesson. Learned. Do you think that's mm. come from you as a parent, or do you think that is something that's innate in their personality? Yeah, I think it's a combination of you have to have the you have to have the raw intellect, and the raw intellect in isolation is not not good or not sufficient, and you have to have the enthusiasm. You know, I remember my, my father always saying to me as a kid, when I set my first business, he said, employ on intellect and enthusiasm because nothing else matters and employ on, employ on enthusiasm over intellect. Mm. Right? Mm. Because if someone's motivated, and, and we had that philosophy setting up our business all the time and we'd get the, the great staff that we had, they'd be working through the weekends to just make something happen. So the enthusiasm Works. And I really want Ethan to, to pick that up. He, he really does. He's got, oh, he definitely has yeah, that. He has that passion. It, it was noticeable because it wasn't easy doing what you did. Do you want to briefly explain the process of how you've started your Dronify company? Yeah, so I guess I'll go right back to the beginning, like the first prototype of the, the concept. Uh, so I've, I've been really interested about technology and business from a very young age. Uh, Every every day I'm checking like tech forums to check out what's been going on in the tech world and watching YouTube videos. And uh, one day I read about this article where a gentleman created a 3D model of an apple using uh, about 100 photos using the process of photogrammetry, which is the process of using uh, an algorithm on a computer to convert 2D photographs into a 3D model. And then I had a, big of a, a bit of a penny drop epiphany moment. Could you scale this up to use drone photography to make 3D models and uh, I was a STEM student uh, at Scotch so I had the, the means to, to test it out so I uh, asked Mr. McLean if I could use the school drone and uh, he let me use it 
and uh, I started the the first prototype of the 3D model, and it worked. So uh, that's where I started off, and then I refined the technique over many weeks and months, and then uh, I figured out that uh, the hardware wasn't really uh, up to date. So I talked to Mr. McLean about getting some updated hardware, and he said uh, there's a parent committee meeting coming up next week. We'd like to pitch them to get some funding for a new drone. So uh, I didn't pitch, and they were very generous in uh, funding a new drone for Scotch. Yeah, you have – there's a nice summary, but there's there's some things that you probably glossed over significantly, and that's the persistence that you displayed in getting yeah. that happening because that was, that was not insignificant. Yeah, it was a really tough process. So this technology space is extremely new. So you can't really just look it up on, on Google and have an answer straight away. It's lots of trial and error, lots of rigorous blood, sweat, and tears to get it done. Uh, I failed a lot of times. And the, the failures are really frustrating because in this line of technology, you're rendering something for up to six, seven, up to 20, 24 hours. And if you have one corrupt file or just one thing goes wrong, the whole thing stuffs up. So when you get that failure screen up on the, the corrupted file it's uh really tough to to get over it but you persevere because you know it's, it's going to be a cool outcome once you get it right so ethan were you having chats with your dad through all this process and sort of saying this is just i'm just over this this is too hard or how did how did that conversation happen with dad in terms of you know when you faced all these problems i don't i don't think i ever really thought i was going to give up i have like an attitude just just get the job done so i was always showing dad the the first i remember showing dad the first prototype of a 3d model i made of a, a statue so it was small scale just to get proof of concept that the photogrammetry really works and dad was really enthusiastic about that and really supportive and then i remember showing him the the first prototype of the maths and commerce building uh 3d model that i made and he got really excited about that he thought that was really cool tech and then uh, further down the line, when I added my first virtual reality integration for the software, uh, Dad was like just mind blown. He and it really meant a lot to to see Dad really that enthusiastic about the the tech because he has such a large tech background. And he's seen lots of stuff, so to get him that excited about technology is really cool. Well, well, let's maybe let's jump to how you got into this uh, tech world, and also probably aligns with how you developed your thoughts on failure as well. From what I've read. Yeah. You had a pretty significant issue as a child and recovered from something it was more or less impossible to recover from. And from then on, everything seemed achievable and there, and then everything, you weren't ever afraid of failing. Is that, am I getting that right? You're spot on. Um, so when I was 14 years of age, I was diagnosed with a benign asocytoma sitting on the motor section of my brain and it occupied about a third of the motor section. And so, you never want to have a brain tumour, but you don't want it in the area that controls all your movement. So I had to have neurosurgery to remove that. But that's 1983. So very dangerous surgery to have. And they had to chop out a third of the motor section. And so the neurosurgeon told mum and dad um, that if I lived through the surgery, then it's highly likely I would I'd lose control of the right hand side of my body. <coughs> Um, by some miracle, Dad got some fantastic neurosurgeon across from Switzerland to perform the neurosurgery in New Zealand. An outstanding success. There's zero... Did you have any input in the choice of what to do? No, Mum and Dad, at the age, um, I think your kids would be a little bit more naive. You know, I was thinking, cool, I'm having brain surgery. <laughs> um, and I wasn't quite aware... Of how severe the, risk. the risks. Mm. I was post surgery where sort of mum and dad went, wow, you know, it's, we're so happy. Mm. That was sort of like a really pivotal moment in my life because for a few things, everything from that point forward never seemed so hard in my adult life. And you know, when you're sort of facing your, your own mortality and the really adverse event, then all the other hurdles that you have to skip over as an entrepreneur don't seem that tough anymore and i think that philosophy and, and dad mum and dad were just so supportive 
of my entrepreneurial um, growth, you know, exactly like I am with dad, with um, Ethan. It's, it's sort of moved through that generation and I can see myself so much in Ethan, like the same philosophy. Like I now see myself in, in my own father, right, just being so supportive and encouraging of setting up a, you know, your first business. And it's been, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really fortunate. I set up my first business at 21 years of age. Well, also great timing to learn all that coding as well because at 14, I guess the first computers were really becoming available to the consumer. Yeah, and can I also add, I'm curious as well about your schooling experience around all that because obviously you're off doing, you know, pursuing this this passion. Um, What role did school play in that? Because obviously it's fantastic now in Scotch context. We've got all these support. Yeah, some parallels with COVID, right? Because we have to do some remote learning now. But back then, I don't imagine you would have been getting much. So it's actually Scotch has quite a big play in all of this. Mm. So at the time, I was at King's College in New Zealand. I was born in Perth. We went to the UK, went to New Zealand. And I always excelled in, in maths and computer science at King's. Then I had the brain surgery and I had a year off school. Um, and then my pitch to mum and dad was I want to go to university in Western Australia because WA had, had a better caliber of computer science courses than what they offered in New Zealand. So mum and dad said to me at 15, if you can get yourself into a private school in Australia, good luck because it's like a five year waiting list, then we'll fund it. Um, and so I jumped on the phone and called up all the private schools um, in WA. And fortunately, we had a, a contact, um, a German, a teacher by the name of Ken Bedwell, who is a um, physics teacher at Scotch, who is previously the physics teacher in New Zealand. Um, and he managed to get me a position um, at Scotch. And so I moved, moved across, boarded at Anderson House, um, and left mum and dad in New Zealand. Wow. Hanging That's out incredible. with all the farmers. Sorry? Hanging out with all the farmers. Yeah, hanging out with all the farmers. Um, but it was, a, it was a really great experience to, to come over here as a, as a 15-year-old as well. Mm. And, and so presumably from 14 on, you started to work on this. Um, can you talk a little bit about working on that project, that first computer and yeah. what transpired there? So I think that as the story goes, and we touched on this before, or Ethan did, mm. um, you know, when I came out of my brain surgery, um, Dad said to me, there's a brand new Thirteen or $14,000 computer, an IBM PC. And Dad says, well, son, you're unsecured minor. You've just had brain surgery, <laughs> so you're credit risk. Uh, it's 2% a month, 24% per annum. Interest repayments start next month. Start earning your keep. <laughs> um, and so I went out and wrote a whole lot of software programs. Um, and so they were um, very techy at the time, like disk defragmentation software and video games and a whole stack of things and I started trying to sell those to local computer companies and the the CEO of Philips um, Philips were just releasing the world's first 16 color computer and I showed off a video game to them said great we've got to bundle that up with the sale of the Yes PC at the time Um, and it it went amazingly well so what Um, what was the game so the original game is called Power Pack and then Philips rebranded that we went into the arcades. So it was all ri- originally it was written in, in basic and in assembly language. We then had to port that into Pascal uh, so that could be cross-compiled into various different platforms. And this is in a, like a console game now, is it? Uh, it is a console, a console game now. Yep. Um, and then when I moved back to Perth just after I finished school, um, I was very fortunate to work for a company called Omnitronics. And Omnitronics was a gun for hire development company and a, a school teacher came in called Jeff Hazelhurst and then Jeff said I've got $30,000 to spend to develop a, a game where you run around with lazy guns and shoot people um, and we said sure you know, we'll, we'll help you design it so the best you know, as a 17 or 18 year old still studying at, at uni it was like the best entourage into a, uh, into a development world and so we designed it, and then um, the rock group U2 came in about a year after that, and Bono rocks up into the office. What? Right? I'm not even going to try and do an Irish accent. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, so he's there with his business managers, and he's got like 
10 sheets of A4 paper of all the companies that they, they own, you know, so the proceeds of uh, the, the U2 concerts. <laughs> Empire. The, the Empire, and they end up buying um, the rights to Quasar, and they shift all the manufacturing across. You get them to throw in some backstage passes or something? Yeah, I should, I should negotiate harder. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and then the, uh, when I set Comtech up. So what year, what year was that? This is 89. Oh, so U2 were massive at this uh, point. Absolutely. Right? They're probably the you know, number one rock group in yeah. the world at, yeah. at that time. And uh, wow. And so how did Bono <laughs> and U2 come <laughs> to learn of this, they this had a, company? They, this What was the contact there? So, so they were over here. I think it was called the Rattle and Hum Tour yep. Yep. Right, in 89. And they went down to Fremantle. And there was a Quasar store. Uh, so, so, so you had the company designing the tech, but they didn't own the retail store, right? Where you p- p- pay to, yes. p- to play. I but remember playing. I remember going there, there go. many times. And, um, and so then um, they played the game, found out who the manufacturer was, and then they arranged for a meeting in the office. Wow. And then, and then it just got got acquired. And then, funnily enough, when I set Comtech up, you know. At, 20 years of age or whoever I was desperate for any money we could we could make um, and the first contract was was to redesign some of the software and so then I got the check from you too and it's like you know, should I bank this or should I just frame it and it's like you know, or, or 10 seconds I'll bank it fantastic so can I ask you this Ethan yeah um, is power pack as good as the games you're playing now <laughs> Yeah, a little, a little bit different, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has a retro feel. Yeah. <laughs> nice way of putting it. Well, so, you know, at 14 years old, you were walking into Phillips at wearing a suit and pitching ideas. And I guess Ethan's kind of doing a little bit of that now. And because I think you recently went to agricultural show and have been trying to pitch your a dronify business. Where has your business taken you so far um, outside of it? So you, you've mapped a lot of the school. Have you done the whole school yet? Yeah, so I actually last week I finished the, the middle school, senior school, junior school and the boarding house. Right. And a big 2D map of the whole school as well. Right. So uh, do you know where that's going yet or what's happening with it? Uh, yeah, so I'm working uh, with the marketing department at Scotch to get up on the website. And also uh, Mr. Owenell, the head of boarding, is going to – I'll be utilising the 3D models at Agriculture Days to show to potential boarding families. Well, one of the things we like to do as well is actually give you the opportunities to extend what you're doing in a in a proper business sense. So, have you have you managed to get any business from going to those agricultural shows or any other um, contacts that you have to to work on your business? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I went to the the Darwin Field Day uh, with the the Scotch team. Uh, man the booth there and talk, talk to a lot of agriculture people down there. And there's lots of uh, interest in doing like type of 2D maps type things for analytics. So like in plant health data and elevation data, so all that type of stuff. And there was definitely quite a few people that were interested. Uh, and it was yeah, a really good experience uh, being a first kind of trade show and doing pitches about the product. Uh, to, to everyday people. So it was different to your 3D stuff though, really. But I mean, yeah. it, di- it didn't actually take you that long to develop the understanding of the 3D concept. So have you thought about applying it more directly to that target audience, being the, the farmers and doing it in an agricultural way? Yeah. So I think the, the main markets for, for Dronify is residential property is really, really big market. Also commercial property. Uh, but I'm really interested in getting into like the agricultural industrial market because I definitely think that there's big applications for this. Like generally, uh, the only way to get a big 2D map or 3D model of the farm is to uh, use satellite imagery or plane imagery, which just can't get the same quality that drones can. So with drones, you can get about a centimeter accuracy. So you can th- see things that are literally this big, but with satellites and, uh, planes, you can't, you ha- it's like a meter. Uh, accuracy so you, for analytics from an analytics point of view it's just much more logical to use a drone hmm. all right um another question <laughs> um all right we might jump to uh, uh, actually I, can i jump yeah. in so um nathan just coming back to your experience and that like in the sort of birth of you know computing really yeah. and then the rise of 
Silicon Valley and all, all these kind of things. Can you talk to that, what that trajectory was like, that experience being at, at the sort of forefront of this boom now um, that, that we all sort of now you know, well, take for granted, all this technology? I, I wish I had been just a few years older at that time. So at, at the time I first got involved in, in this field, I was probably 13 years of age. But you just lap up so much knowledge at that point. Mm. And IBM had just announced they were releasing the world's first personal computer. So I think it was a 64 kilobytes of RAM, had a floppy, a floppy drive, and uh, so the five and quarter inch floppy and a monochrome display. That's what you got for the, the $13,000 at the time, which is probably $35,000 in modern day money. Mm. But gee, the, the processing power that you had, and you had to really work. Like, if I wanted to play a video game, I'd have to write the video game to then play it. And so mm. you couldn't just connect to the internet and download. You, you didn't even have bulletin boards in, in those days, right? So you're manually coding everything in. You're not only making the game, you're making the rules of the game you want to play. You have exactly. to devise those. And, yep. So, you know, like I, um, uh, I designed uh, one game which is very out of um, uh, out of taste at the time. It's called the Chernobyl Disaster, and, and you're Mikhail Gorbachev, um, and you're it's like Donkey Kong. That's what I was inspired by. Huh, wow. And you're Mikhail Gorbachev running around this platform, tightening up all the cooling fluid, and you had these uh, atomic rats that would be chasing you to kick the rats or hit them with a hammer and so forth. Um, but they thought, Phillips thought that was in bad taste. A little bit controversial. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bit controversial at the time. So how did you learn it all? With, did, you, did you use books? Did you yeah, so, have mentors? So, so a, lot of, a lot of book reading, that was probably the, the, the prevalent method. You didn't have online videos or, or anything like that. Um, and then you had like computer clubs. Um, and when I, So I was writing all those computer games and did relatively well selling a, a few of them. And then when I moved across to Perth, we had a, a computing teacher at Scotch called Barney Clarkson, and Barney was very, very supportive. It was the first year that computer science was a TE subject as well. Um, and so I think that the philosophy was let's really encourage computer science as a, a field of study. Um, and then I, you know, post-Scotch, I went to Curtin to do a, a, a Bachelor of Business with a major in IT. Did any of your peers do IT at that time? Um, most of my friends went on to do um, econs degrees or commerce degrees. Mm. Um, so this is still a, a business degree, but with a major in IT. Mm. Um, I could have done the computer science route as well, but I just decided to go through the business route because I thought I knew most of the computer science sections already. What's your take on you know, computer programming as a subject now, because my understanding is the uptake of students taking computer science courses is pretty low in, in West, in West Australian context compared yes. to other parts of the world. And I'm curious to know what you think about that and how, you know, is it a sort of essential skill set that young people should be kind of learning along with all these other important disciplines? How, how do you see that? So, so a couple of points on that. I think having a fundamental computer science knowledge is very helpful for any discipline. It's just like having a fundamental knowledge of, of business and accounting and marketing. Mm. It's just another area that you need to be well-versed in. In terms of having computer science as a career now, you're competing against a lot of low-cost labor pools. Right? So India is sort of 6 to $8 an hour for employees in India. But the, the way of the new world is to write, to have a really strong appreciation of software engineering, to write the specifications and define what your requirements are, and then having the skill sets to be able to manage those teams. But you need to have very strong technical skills to be able to manage those teams. So it's good to have the background in it or some experience in it beforehand. Yeah, definitely. We're talking before about how specialized some of the, that technology is mm-hmm. now as well. So the kind of thing that, Ethan's doing is is so highly specialised compared to probably your background, which was very broad because that's all there was at that point in time. And now it's just gone into so many different fields. It's I would imagine it's a bit overwhelming yes. for students now to know how to get that general understanding. Yeah, but I, th- I think you need to be 
you know, as a, a high school student, you want to have a broad depth or a broad level of understanding, not necessarily a deep understanding of all those fields, and then specialise once you get to university. Um, and it is a, the rate of technology adoption and the level of specialisation that you're dealing with, it is mind-blowing. Like, I've done a lot of work in the, the medical area. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it was so much easier to do things. But now we're dealing with you know, AI, Bayesian mathematics principles, and you're trying to apply Bayesian mathematics, like the, the probability of getting more data coming in. So you need bigger budgets and a broad skill set to bring a product to market now. So I think that the entrepreneurial journeys that are coming out in this generation are going to be different to the entrepreneurial journeys of, of my generation. You know, I, I could start a business and I could do the, the marketing, the sales, the production, the design, and you could be a jack of all trades to develop it. But now I think you need probably the more of a focus of trying to raise the capital to be able to – it's a bigger investment to go mm, forth mm. to launch a business today than what it has been. In saying that, there's all these little vertical niches that you can carve out. You know, Dronify is a really good example. And, you know, and Ethan and I have talked about this, that you need to pick a, a niche which is big enough to be financially attractive but not so big as to attract the major players to then build up your, your business and then grow it. So you need a good solid foundation with good income coming in so then you can add that to your business empire. Mm. So what can you summarise then to be uh, the ideal entrepreneur in this day and age between the two of you? What are, you, what are your thoughts, Ethan? Do you know what that would be, what that person would look like? I think uh, to be a really successful entrepreneur nowadays, I think it's more about management of people more so than having the intimate knowledge of the, the technology and the, the actual product because yeah, nowadays, like Dad was saying, uh, you need to have such a big team to that specialize in lots of small areas. You you can't just be the the guy behind all of it, know everything about every everything going on in the business. So I think the management skills are just even more important now than they were fifty years ago. And, and almost a bit of a, uh, a knowledge of how to speak the language of all of these areas, right? Like the marketing. Hmm. To meet with a marketing team and know mm. you have to know that language tone each each of those so little areas that's, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. where the broad knowledge base comes in. So you can't be like an absolute specialist in each of these fields, but you kind of have to have some level of knowledge about everything, so mm. everything makes sense. And so probably you, occasionally bluff it if if you need to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's what part. have you bluff, Nathan? Yeah, <laughs> the biggest bluff. <laughs> Let, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I, I can give you the biggest bluff. It might um. Tell a, a story slightly premature of the the Secret Service. Okay, yeah, we'll, that yeah, story? yeah. Tell it. We'll, we'll we'll need to figure out how you got there too. But let's let's go there. Um, so so I'll, so I'll give you the story in its in all its glory. So you you lied to the Secret Service? Is that <laughs> is that what you're saying? It wasn't me. As my business partner, who's also an ex Scotch guy. Bless <laughs> <laughs> his heart. Um, so, so so Zane Lewis. So Zane and I um, went to Scotch together. and We became business partners. A few years we'll after. have to redact that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so the story goes, um, uh, September the 11th, 2001, was the day that we chose to open our US office. Wow. Of all days in history. And Zane, um, Zane and Rach, Zane had volunteered to fly across to Jacksonville in Florida to open up the office. So he was the last plane to land. He landed between the first and the second tower being struck in Los Angeles. Rach was here and we were all very close, um, you know, very good friends and, and business partners. So I think I spoke to Zane for probably six hours that night when the tower got taken down. Um, and so that was sort of our entourage into the United States, um, you know, just catastrophic you know, for uh, so many different levels, you know, not the least of which we'd spent a lot of money to get the US office up and going. Fast forward that, um, to 2008, and I'll try to do my very best um, DC accent. And uh, the phone goes off at the US office, and Latoya was our receptionist at the time. Uh, so Latoya answers the phone. Good afternoon, come to Wow, that's how may I help you? And um, 
This is Special Agent Tim Smith, United States Secret Service. I'm calling you on behalf of the President of the United States. Can I speak to your President, please? And Latoya sort of thinks, is this a, like a false joke or whatever? So she puts the call through to Zane. It's like, hey, Zane, we've got this guy who's claiming to be coming from the United States Secret Service. Uh, I don't know, but do you want to have a talk to him or what? <laughs> so Zane says, g'day. <laughs> I'm the President of Comtech US in a very thick Australian accent. And uh, so um, Special Agent Tim Smith says, uh, Mr. Lewis, we've been researching companies to make a mobile, deployable, mesh network, fully redundant duress system to protect the President of the United States and the first family. And we've identified that your company can design such a product for us. Would you mind coming up to the White House to do a presentation for us? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well. What? <laughs> Later on, we just we found out on our Google Analytics that uh, the White House had typed in duress system for the President of the United States and pressed <laughs> Google search. So, what is that duress system? Is that something that if he's under? So the so every time the the President or the first family travels, they have a Secret Service contingent connected to them. Yeah, and the Secret Service team sent in in advance of that location to secure it from every threats. Now, if every other countermeasure had failed to protect the president or the first family, they needed some mechanism, some fail-safe to say, I'm in fear of my life, contact the Secret Service guys no matter what, and they come running in, guns blaring to, to save the day. Of course, you don't want to have a false call. You, know, you don't want to be sitting there with uh, Putin coming in <laughs> and the Secret Service guys come rushing in. Um, and so leading on to, to, to your answer, um, fortunately we had a lot of ex-military people working for us in our Florida office. A gentleman of uh, John Cozart was an ex-US Marine Corps, Purple Star and all the glamour and a whole lot of other secrets, not a whole lot of other military guys. And so Zane went up to the White House with John um, and Zane tells a story that they go through like four hours of security checks, like AK-47s trained on through the whole meeting, gets to through to the White House, into an area called White House Communications, and two huge oak doors. The oak doors open. There's the boardroom table with Secret Service and CIA and FBI and all the, the various cloak and dagger organisations. And they start rattling out to Zane um, what are the product requirements. And we're, we're talking about a lot of custom developments here. So that's very, very specific list of requirements because it has to be impervious to terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. If you think that, again, the, the era that we're dealing with is post 9-11, so you know, real bona fide threats to the safety of the, the president. Um, and this was the last line of defence if every other countermeasure had failed. So Zane, bless his heart, sure, no problems, we can do yeah. that. <laughs> Just give us the purchase order, come on. <laughs> Trust me. And so, so I'm on the phone to Zane, right, you know, straight after he's had this meeting, because right, it's like the biggest thing. And sure enough, you know, Zane sort of said, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, and you know, I'm the tech guy, Zane's the sales guy. So why have you promised to these guys? <laughs> so we diverted all the resources in the company. Oh, to add to it, Zane said, oh, yeah, I've arranged a meeting for next month. We're going to come up and show them the working prototype. Oh, wow. so, so then we have okay. to divert all the engineering stuff, so the entirety of the business, without having a contract. Uh, and we go flat out, right? So it, but, of course, you can imagine – in little old Perth, with having people we had in the Perth office at the time, I think maybe 40 of people. But we're saying the Secret Service of the United States have engaged us to develop a platform to protect the president of the United States and the first family. You know, of course, so everyone's just so fired up. And yeah, the excitement. And it goes on before what we were saying before, but you know, being an entrepreneur today, uh, and always, it's always about the people. And we've always been trying to inspire them to do great things, mm, mm. right? And so everyone, and it has to be genuine, right? So you have to be genuinely excited yourself mm. to inspire that genuine level of excitement themselves. So anyway, we diverted all the resources of the company to develop this uh, mobile deployable mesh network dress system, uh, ship it across design, and uh, lo and behold, 
Um, it goes out, has to go out to a public bid because it's um, well in excess of the million dollar type contract. Um, and goes out on a Friday afternoon for a public bid, closes on the Monday. And then a few days later, we've got this multi-million dollar purchase order on the fax machine going, holy smokes. <laughs> With a little seal of the president pretty yeah, much. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I've got some White House mugs and, right. and so forth. Um, and so it's just the most um, surreal. surreal. Yeah, it's just like mind-blowing experience. And uh, not surprising, um, the company that lost the contract to us then uh, acquiring the company a few months later. Um, and wow. So, wow. So that's like the uh, abbreviated uh, White House story. It's a really great experience, though. So, what? How did they uh, see you as a company that could achieve what they wanted? What? 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 Were you, was that when you're in the medical field? Yeah, Zane was just a brilliant salesman. Right. right. <laughs> um, the, the core business that we had at Comdec Wireless was a, a medical middleware business. So we would take in disparate data sources from biomedical machines. So we'd have patient for diagnosis. Mon- yeah, we'd have patient monitoring, pulse oximetry, ventilators, IV pumps, pathology results, imaging results. That would all come into a platform. We'd analyse all that raw data, identify emerging clinical risk, and send those. Was there a lot of that going on at the time? No, we were very much the innovators in that right, space. So that's why they would have seen you as. So they actually saw what we had. We had some deployments, <laughs> this is somewhat ironic, in psych facilities. Um, and so we needed, f- in some of the psych facilities, the staff needed locational, positional duress systems. So if oh. a staff member was attacked by a psychiatric patient, then we need to hone in on where that staff member was. So you had things like man down alarms, so um, a little mercury switch. So if they're lying down and not moving, send off the notification. So that was the genesis of what was. The end and product. someone had spotted that particular application in the Secret Service and gone. Yes. That's well, all we well, need. And that's some of a hypothesis. Right, uh, right. Yeah. And when I say it really was a Google search, it really was. You know, sort of <laughs> came from DC, this this Google search for dress system. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, quite quite a surreal um, experience to, to live through. They must have put you through the the ringer a bit, given you're an Australian. But I mean, you're you'd moved to the states, obviously. But so did they put so, you in through the ringer a bit more than perhaps other companies would have been? Yeah. So again, lots of interesting stories on on that. So when we secured the White House contract because it was so substantial to the company, we decided to to relocate head head office functions out of Australia across to Jacksonville. So okay. then um, uh, Ethan is a, a very young age. Um, and he, he developed a, a wonderful southern accent ah, wow. uh, yeah. you know, at, at the time. And so Ethan was 18 months. Uh, and then Trudy and I were relatively recently recently married. So we moved across the United States. Uh, again, just a surreal experience. We, we, we sold our house for... Um, yeah, for tax purposes, you have to demonstrate that you're cutting your ties with Australia and you're setting up. And that really was a situation where we were mm. planning on a long-term move to the United States. We sold a house, we sold our cars, shut down our bank accounts, repurchased a home, purchased cars and did everything in, in America. And then three months later or six months later, we get approached for the business to be acquired. Um, you know, then Lachlan gets born, the, you know, our little American at home. <laughs> um, and, and that's sort of the, the, the craziness of that, that story coming through. Wow. Well, you talked about innovation in that company that you're in. So I'll ask you this question. What does R&D stand for? <laughs> uh, so my first employer as a, as, a, as a young man, I was working for a company called OSCO. And uh, they manufactured nurse call systems, right? So these little buttons that you press mm. for help. And um, and Bob said to me, uh, he asked me R&D stand, stood for, I said, research and development. And then he said, no, 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 replicate and duplicate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sometimes and, I think people see innovation as something that's really vast and incredibly creative and only some people are capable of. But it's really, it's, it's taking, and I think this is a quote from you, I can't remember the exact yeah. quote, Something about finding the connections between areas is where you find the innovation. Do you remember what it was you said? So I did a speech for Innovation Australia um, on the subject. True innovation is born from the convergence of multiple oh, yes. perspectives. 
I reckon I recognise it quite. I can't remember exactly yeah. what I said. Yeah, that's uh, exactly but, what you said. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the point I was, I think I was trying to convey is, you shouldn't create, you should innovate for the sake of innovating. You should innovate based on customer demand. Um, but in that space, mm, though, you're mm. taking knowledge that you have from a multiple different yeah. areas. And research, you, even if it's a research skill, like you're, we might, we'll talk about your magic. Yes. Both of you soon as well. But in, in that uh, space, you'll be looking at how do I figure out this little bit? And now I'm going to combine it with this little bit. And then I can create this product that does all the stuff that this person's asking me to do. Yeah. So I think it's important to listen to the customers of who you're trying to sell the product to. But you also need to apply. I mean, I can talk about some things which haven't gone as well. So uh, one time I was at a restaurant and we were giving a little vibrating, flashing buzzer. All right, excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> and, and that would vibrate when your meal was ready to be collected. I'm sure that you've been giving yep, them at, yep. at some point. And I was saying, gosh, I can create that. And so we went out and we created them. We sold a whole stack of them. But that's an example of doing something because we could do it, not necessarily because we should have done it. We were a medical technology company and we uh, you know, my mistake i elected to develop a product because we could develop it but then we're selling products into the hospitality sector and so that uh, that meant the company lost focus and we mm. split our resources and i didn't at the time comprehend how that would chew into a bit of the marketing time a little bit of production time um and the business could have grown faster if we'd stayed true to our to one area yeah, yeah. If I have my time again. I'll probably change a few of those things. So, Ethan, with with your with your with Dronify, with yeah. your company, you clearly have a market there. There's clearly some customers out there that you're listening to. That you know that you're that are out there that are quite niche, I, I guess, at the moment. Yeah. Um, but you've also got that real enthusiasm for that. Not not just for satisfying those customers, but you kind of have to have a passion for playing with the gear and the tech yeah. and the beyond that right exactly so with all the other stuff that i do at dronify i have i have a real deep passion for all of it so like with augmented reality virtual reality drones 3d modeling it's all all stuff that's right up my alley that i I love experimenting with i think that's that's why i stuck with dronify through the the tough times when i was originally creating the prototypes because uh, i have real fascination with all those types of tech and uh when i was i think when I was looking at the, the customers or potential customers for the market, uh, I remember talking to a real estate friend of dad's, uh, Andrew Gill, and he's talking about um, how like boring it is to, to do uh, walkthroughs uh, for, for houses. He's a realtor. And especially in the COVID-19 climate, we can't actually physically go out to these residential properties to check it out. Uh, so I thought that that would be a good market to to kind of – help out during COVID especially uh, like because when you when when you're locked down there's just no way to go out and go out to these properties and check out everything they have to offer so the best the next best thing is to make 3D models of the the place and interactively allow the user to to check it out yeah I, th- I think what's also fascinating about that is um, even in the midst of COVID you ha- we have this crazy real estate boom happening where people are buying and selling houses almost counterintuitively to me that the market would be so hot in that environment so then you're gonna you know in that kind of context you've you've got a ongoing big market i imagine you know with all of this uncertainty around yeah like with all these residential properties going up onto the market everyone wants to stand out from the competition and how do you do that online or like Mm. if you go into a real estate website all of the houses have the same type of marketing scene. They all have just boring old two D photos, and that doesn't engage the user at all. It's like they see they've seen it all before. So if you have an interactive, engaging three D model, then that really exudes a premium price point for the the house and a premium feeling. Yeah, and mm-hmm. what he what Ethan can do as well is he can actually give it to you on your phone and, and place that model of the building or the complex yeah. down on a table, and you can actually just move your phone around and look at it. Yeah, so it's like pretty the augmented reality, yeah. you can just load up on your phone, 
and then put it down on the table using the iPhone camera and then it has positional tracking as well so you can walk around and check out the different angles and then you've also got virtual reality for virtual reality headsets so you can put on the virtual reality goggles and then load up the model and walk around the model and look around uh, in three-dimensional space so it feels like I'm really the, there. The, the thing that really amazed me was um, a couple of years ago I sponsored a project, um, a, ho- a hologram. So this is... Um, when you can visualize it without wearing special eyepieces and you've got a holographic image on the table, right? So this is really a very innovative technology. Mm. Microsoft are in that space quite heavily, aren't they yeah, now? Yeah. But yeah, so, the HoloLens. Yes, sorry, yeah. yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Ethan somehow managed to get a holographic version of Scotch put on and that was just <laughs> a mind-blowing experience. We're sitting there with a miniature solid model of Scotch Without wearing glasses, where I can walk around like this and actually see it. It's just wow. that's incredible. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> and then also like hand tracking as well, so you can uh, use your hands to make the the model bigger and smaller and rotate around. So like minority, like, report. yeah, like, like yeah. minority report. <laughs> yes, so, I feel like that's what you're going to be doing in a few years' time. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Well, because as, as you build better functionality to be able to manipulate that hologram, right? It, it's going to get even more. Minority reportish, isn't yeah. it? I, I, so, you know, in terms of international, like if I'm in California and I want to buy a property in Perth, that's also contact dronify. Yeah. You know, how about that deal that you did for the TD? Yeah, so uh, Dad was working on the mergers and acquisitions with a uh, a company that was uh, trying to sell the company, and uh, they had lots of international buyers that were, they were interested in seeing the the company. So uh, what I did to help the uh, help out the due diligence team was to make a three D model of the company headquarters, uh, that which were in Perth because of COVID restrictions you can't uh, fly over here to check everything out. So uh, that was a good way for the due diligence team to to see everything that the company has. Wow! So you, you wow. teens in business award. Um, yeah. What did you learn from that? You had mentors. Uh, I imagine they were pretty high level mentors. Did you learn anything new from that situation? Yeah. So. Uh, the probably the main mentor was Peter Gray, and he he had a bit to say uh, during the presentation about um, like scaling a business and making a business successful. But I, I really like the the full experience like of the the Teens Business Awards and becoming a finalist. Uh, it was great getting like a solidified kind of elevator pitch ready. So. Uh, condensing everything down to, to show what you have to offer. Yeah, because you were originally a little bit too tech-heavy with your presentation, is that right? Yeah, so I think sometimes I kind of forget not everyone understands the, the tech and is super interested in the tech. They kind of just want to know the applications. So it's good to, to get that feedback and switch around a bit to talk more about the customer than the, the technology itself. Mm. Can I ask it, what what aspects do you really want to learn more about as an entrepreneur like what have you found most challenging and the stuff you you think you might be missing right now to finish the puzzle of being yeah. a success fully successful ongoing entrepreneur i think the the biggest problem i face is getting adults and p- people in general to take a teenager seriously mm-hmm. so you, you can have like a great tech technology concept and have a good business model but just because you're a teenager, people kind of discriminate and kind of scoff like this teenager doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, so I think I need to find a better way to immediately show it. I'm not just joking around. I've got a cool, cool uh, technology and a business model. And yeah, because so like, yeah. it's great. You can prove that with the tech too. So yeah. I can understand why you want to go tech heavy with your presentations because yeah. that proves that you know what you're talking about. Because I've yeah. seen you getting asked questions by people that used to work for Google and things like that and you and you were just you know straight down their throat straight away and I think they were trying to trip you up but you yeah, they were. S- smashed it out of the park yeah so it's, yeah it's definitely good to have uh that knowledge of tech because if you get some really techie guys that want to test you make sure that you know yourself yeah so you always have to, to and, know I, how and, to, and I think to at, the end of the, at the end of the day if someone's going to part with you know hundred thousand dollars to help fund it they they want to know every detail, right? They'll go yeah, beyond exactly. just liking liking you as a person and all that kind of stuff. They want to see that you know every every detail. You've been you're, pretty, you're a pretty convincing guy already, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. <laughs> well, you're interested in entrepreneurs, right? right? <laughs> you, didn't you send an email to Steve Wozniak a little while? What happened there? Yeah, so uh, I sent an email to Steve Wozniak, the, the co-founder of Apple, 
and I asked him about entrepreneurial advice that he has and uh, what he was like in high school and what, what steps I can take to make a similar business to Apple in the future. And he just gave me like full paragraph responses to all my questions. It was just and what fantastic. dad think of that? Well, I came back from school one day. I said, dad, guess who emailed me? I said, who, son? Steve Wozniak. <laughs> and dad didn't believe me. He thought I got like a scam email or something. And then I showed him the email and he was like, whoa, this is and, awesome. And Nathan, did you immediately go, I'm going to try and get hold of Steve Jobs? <laughs> <laughs> but that would be the main feat of the time. Yeah. <laughs> You need to use a bit of magic for that one, right? Yeah, I'd be worried if Dad got an email from Steve Jobs. <laughs> well, I have to say, like, I mean, I mean, at home, we have such a great relationship. So we just, you know, we really talk through everything all the time. The first thing that Ethan does when he gets home is he sits down and says, "How's your day, Dad?" And I tell him what I'm working on. But because there's such a broad cross section, that's because you work on interesting things. The way <laughs> you know, our kids don't ask us, you know, it's boring, but you know. You're making magic tricks and doing work with Secret Service. But, but, but even even outside those things, like when I was doing IPOs and RTOs or doing you know, Series A capital raise for a company, so Ethan's there, or we've got legal disputes, he's really, we're talking about it like he talked through with adults, right? And I'm sure Ethan could probably quote the sections of law that we deal with, <laughs> he reads all the correspondence. So it's just that. Enthusiasm, yeah, that passion to understand, mm, mm. right? And 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 at the age, he just really soaks it, soaks yeah. it right up. Yeah, it's, it's great to talk about that with all, all the stuff, especially uh, with all the, the drone stuff. Asking for his opinion on, on all the stuff, and yeah, learning a lot from from dad, or, or like even like when we had the COVID lockdowns i thought we'll do business 101 yeah. when ethan's at home so sole traders pdyltds <laughs> so, so we went through all the corporate entities or entity types we did like law we did accrual franking credits franking credits <laughs> dividends i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> but it's great it's a great time for us isn't it? yeah it's really fun now well and and i think that's a nice sort of segue now to you, where you where you did you spend a bit of that time showing ethan a few Magic tricks. <laughs> yes. So, um, well, it's funny. We ha- we've had Pierre on here. He was our first guest for the Range Project. Um, and I've since uh, met another one of those. I-, I think you're in a little circle. Yeah. I- um, so I've met Matt Hale, who, yes. who foils with me. We just did a podcast on foiling. So he's a foiler. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was at a, at a dinner with James Diamond as well, who's awesome. And all yes. of them speak incredibly highly of you. Um, so what do you do with magic and how is that possibly a career? (laughs) (laughs) So to backtrack a little bit. So after the, we did that secret service project, um, I thought it'd be a wonderful idea. We'll move back to Australia and go into retirement. And and that sounded like a wonderful idea, except I got back to Perth and I had none of my friends to play with because they all had full-time jobs or other things. And so I'm sitting there changing Lachlan's diaper Thing. How have I gone from protecting the President of the United States and the first family to changing diapers? Um, so I set up a venture capital firm uh, and we started to invest, take equity positions in tech startups and list those onto the ASX, which was financially rewarding, but mm. didn't quite tick my, um, my tech area because it's much more the financial mm. side of it. And so then I started to get interested in magic, which is a sort of a very multidisciplinary field. So this is, this is post 40, you got interested in magic. Yeah. Yeah. So I always like watching magic. And, um, and so then we developed a range of really clever magic effects and we had some early success. Um, when you say magic effects, what, what do you mean? Like, Tech kind of magic effects or not necessarily tech. kind of well, where do that what realm are they sitting in? They're sitting more in the tech space. Um, who was it? Arthur C. Clarke said that anything which is sufficiently technologically advanced would appear as magic, mm-hmm. and that's really what we, we sat in. And um, that really reached a, a, a pinnacle a few years ago, where um, I was very pleased to to go to David Copperfield's show in the United States and Chris Kenner was and has been and still is David's manager. So I showed Chris Kenner what we do 
and you could see Chris got so excited. You gotta show this to David. You gotta show this to David. So he gets on the phone. You know, and David's the pinnacle of this this area, right? Um, and so I go into to show it to David Copperfield. So he's just like a kid. Right? He's walking in there and we go into into his bedroom, funny enough. He's, he's got a bedroom connected at the hotel that he performs at the MGM. Mm. And we're showing this stuff to David. David's getting excited. And so, of course, that just really fuels it when you see the David again. A master like that. Yeah. And then the, and then the following night, we see another very well-known uh, magician, Chris Angel. Um, and then Chris got so excited. And so, so those two really inspired me to put some more money into this space. And it is quite an expensive area to innovate in. There's a lot of groundbreaking. Uh, you're trying to recreate um, the facsimile of being able to foretell future events and to read minds. Yeah, uh, it's, so, it's incredible. All right, well, well we better finish up there yes. now. Uh, do we want to have a quick fire? Maybe one or two quick fires? Or was that our quick fire? Give him a quick oh, fire. Oh, no, no. I'll, I'll, there's a couple of quick fires. Okay. I'm hoping to ask both of you, actually, yeah, okay. if that's okay. Starting with you, Ethan. Yeah. Um, is there a book uh, in the last couple of years that you've read that has really had a prof- profound impact impact on you? That's um, not a book? pie to 50,000 decimal <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, beyond this book. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's sort of had an impact on the way you think about the world, um, you know, entrepreneurism, yeah. any of those things. Yeah, definitely. So the two books that come to mind I've read in the past year or so is the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson and How to Win from Friends and Influence People by David Dale Carnegie. And mm. those are really just two great books. Mm. Uh, so the Steve Jobs book really went into great detail about his whole life and from uh, being adopted uh, in like the, the 60s to uh, starting Apple. To, so all these great steps in Steve Jobs' life to, to great success. And it was really interesting to uh, to see all those steps. And uh, all of this stuff was proved by Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs was there writing it side by side with Walter Isaacs and the, the whole time proofing it, making sure that was all accurate. Uh, so that was really interesting to read and uh, take a lot of the stuff they said and advised in that book uh, in my business and, and life. Uh, and also uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People was a really uh, profound book where you kind of um, really changed the way you thought about uh, business interactions and just mm. everyday interactions uh, as well. Uh, lots of interesting principles that are definitely very applicable uh, in everyday life. And this book was written over on like decades ago and all the stuff is still really applicable in today's business world. And did that give you more more confidence in your interactions, that, that yeah. Dale Carnegie book? Yeah, definitely. So I knew exactly how to uh, like talk in, in business meetings and how to uh, create interest and uh, really sell the product mm. through Excellent. all those principles in those books. Dad, what about you? Um, Ethan School Reports, <laughs> number one read, um, and the 2021 Master Tax Guide. Okay. <laughs> no, North Swiss, um, the, the, the Warren Buffett uh, biography I found was really interesting. I, sort of, I, I love Buffett's approach and the mm. metrics that he uses and the way how he thinks through things. I used to do a lot more reading when I was younger, but in, I suppose in recent years, that's waned off a little bit. I'm just so busy. I don't get much time to mm. to, to read for for pleasure. But I used to. Okay. Read, uh, the books that yeah. he's reading now are for, for my collection. Yeah, Dad's got this big uh, tray of old, old books I used to read uh, when he was a young entrepreneur. So just picking all those up and fantastic. Them. Yeah. So and you get you you know you've got a book about a great great business operator, maybe one of the greatest in in Warren Buffett, and then you've got one of the greatest yeah. entrepreneurs and. So I imagine there's a bit of conversation about those two books. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, uh, there's a lot, lot to be learned in, in bio- biographies and autobiographies. Like, kind of modeling the the business off the, those uh, early stories about like Apple and Amazon mm. and all those different businesses. Oh, it's great, yeah, brilliant. Like, I think. like, I've read the books previously, but so long ago now, I've forgotten. And Ethan refreshes my memory. About them, we had some good discussions over them, and so our thoughts, yeah. contemporary thoughts, yeah. reflecting upon what the time was like in their era yeah. and how things have changed. Well, the pr- probably big takeaway I took from Steve Jobs' book was 
presenting like steve jobs was a really master presenter he got everyone in the room really excited about the the technology and the, the prospects of what the technology could could give to the consumer and i tried to uh use a few of his techniques and and his persona like type of persona on stage when i do presentations or pitches so that, that was really big takeaway from me and i imagine that is so integral because you've got to raise capital don't you exactly you've got to be able to tell people would want to part with their money for your business you've got to get people really excited to, to part with their money it's, it's hard yeah yeah oh that's brilliant i'm um, sure some okay. of those mentalism tasks might help with that as well yeah. <laughs> yes yes <Blood> games. <laughs> <laughs> all right so deserted island what music is on your spotify playlist I defer all my music selections to my wife and to my son. Okay. Okay. What do you reckon, Eden? Piano Man's got to be the top, top okay. of the list there. Piano Just, Man yeah. from your US days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a pretty good song. Great song. Uh, yeah. It's probably at the top okay. of the list. And a habit that you've formed in the last five years that um, has been of most benefit, not necessarily the last five years, but... Maybe a habit you formed in the last five, 10 years. Five years is a long time for a 15-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. Oh, Do you want to start with you, Ethan? Oh, I love that, that story. Well, sort of a double-edged sword because I've sort of got a reverse um, scenario now because you know, I developed a whole lot of good habits when I was running my larger business. So now it's a little bit sort of reversed. Yep. So I think in the early days, a really good habit I was was writing everything down I'm going to do in that day, as silly as what it sounds, is you get, a, I found I had a higher sense of achievement at the end of the day, seeing all the things ticked that off. I, I ticked off, mm. whereas you don't sort of realise all the things that, that you get done. And in recent years, um, turning my phone off at a reasonable hour and not constantly checking messages, and mm. um, I'm still very guilty <laughs> of that. But uh, it's work in progress. Actually, I shouldn't. I know we've got to finish up, but yeah. I just really want to ask you this question: If you think about email, before we get onto your habit, yeah. by the way, um, how do we solve the problem of email? Because it feels like it's enslaved humanity to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Apple are making some great progress in that space where you can, in the last version of iOS. You can start flipping what profiles you have to start filtering that through. Okay. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll, we'll see the – on one hand, you've got the handset manufacturers who want you to be 24 by 7 on your device, mm. but you've also got longevity of the uh, of your clientele base. You don't want to get burnout as right. well. Right, right. Okay. So, so I, I think just filtering through of messages, it's difficult like with a magic business. It's a – because we sell worldwide, there's always someone who wants something, um, yeah. and uh, and I'll just get pinged all night. So I, I have to use the do not disturb, otherwise my phone's going ping, 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 ping. Right, and right. If I, and if I forget to turn do not disturb on, I get a very upset wife. <laughs> okay. We might be going a bit more targeted, like, you know, WhatsApp groups and teams and things like that. They, they tend to be pretty targeted, specific areas, and it can all be contained within that one content area, which... Might be a pathway. Yeah, there's lots know. of other yes. platforms now coming out, aren't there, where the you know, project-orientated yeah. platforms yeah. that, um, what are you they know, Shared documents and things like that, so you don't have to email. I don't think there's really out. been that. <clears throat> now, if I look at all the number of instant messaging apps, you know, so I've got Signal, I've got WhatsApp, I've got email, I've got Messenger. It's just a huge list. I find personally frustrating having to flip <laughs> through all those different communication mechanisms yeah. to make sure I've got – I think – Someone like Apple should create a universal messaging app and then have integrations into all the, the vendors so you've got a, a single source of truth, a single section to search. That would be a great innovation okay. to have. Well, maybe you can do it. Yeah, maybe yep. we can do it. Yeah. All right. Well, we, be, we better cut it there, right? Hey? Oh, oh, well, got, got one more. Sorry, okay, one more. We just up. hadn't got um, <clears throat> Ethan's habit. Oh, I'm yes, sure he's okay. got yeah. a few good habits, actually, in the Probably. last five I think years. Uh, the, the main one is kind of having a strong kind of intrinsic motivation to to get the job done so i, I remember like in year six uh when we had our first digital design uh lesson and, and projects i noticed that lots of the boys i uh, kind of just gave up because it was too hard they're having too many problems and i was guilty of that too i thought it was, it was hard i didn't want to keep on going so i thought then i had to change that soon anyways otherwise uh there'll be i want to be able to get stuff done 
So mm-hmm. I think in the past couple of years, I've been working on being able to just get the job done through like intrinsic motivation because there's always going to be someone there telling you to, to get it done and motivating you on the, the sidelines. So sometimes you have to be your own cheerleader to, mm. to really push over the line and get something done. Yeah, it's great to have that skill. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's why I really like to have both of you in. I think your constant enthusiasm for learning, both of you, is, is very admirable. So, yeah, thanks a lot for coming in. It's a pleasure. Yeah, really appreciate it. It's awesome. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Project, proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association.